we go two, twice all the way around those, those things, two, two high ones, two, two low ones.
you're listening to Ink Studs, and I'm talking to Roman Muradov. Did I actually pronounce it right? I didn't check with you. Uh, let's not do it every time. I I don't remember things, Roman. Like, okay, there, there are some things, uh, there are some people, uh, not things, who insist on pronouncing my name the right way, which I find mildly irritating. You know, like, you're an American, just pronounce it your way. Don't try to sound clever. All right, then. I know you're not technically American, but from my inflated perspective, you're all the same. <laughs> so, yeah, you didn't pronounce it right, but carry on. Okay. You're listening to Ink Studs, and my guest this week is Roman Muradov. Um, oh, can't you even pronounce my name? It's Roman Murad. Okay. Carry on. Uh, and my apologies to Roman for mispronouncing. Um, here, I'll restart. No, just go on. Okay. I'll just, I'll, I'll tweak this a little bit. Um, Roman's latest book is, uh, End of Offense, as well as... No, it's not. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> Please don't delete this. Uh, <laughs> well, it's your, I... it, it's one of your latest books, plural. It's Penultimate book, uh, yeah. as well as Jacob Bladders, uh, yeah, and, the, the last one. Yeah. and the state of art, uh, and in France, uh, Ajourdui, and uh, on Hazlitt, you currently have uh, Maurice, son of Noah, running, um, and you'll have another thing which you showed me, which will be in an upcoming anthology from a certain Seattle publisher. Who could that be? I have no idea. Um, there used to be a... I think Starhead was a publisher in Seattle at one point, and there was a kind of a, a furry publisher in Seattle for a long time that like Colin Upton did like a furry porn comic for, and that was his best-selling comic of all time. I'm glad we started on this note. <laughs> um... You don't want to talk about free comics with me, Roman? Sure. Okay. Uh, I just don't know if we can have the entire hour dedicated to that. No, no, we won't. Uh, thank you for taking the time to meet with me this evening. Welcome. Uh, you're working out of, you're telling me you're working out of a kind of a shared studio space, uh, which sounds like it's kind of the, the condition of living in San Francisco right now. Everything is shared. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's just this new, like, post uber lifestyle where uh yeah i'm afraid so uh, soon we'll have our arteries shared and everything it's a it's a very strange place now the last time we talked um was when your no brow book came out yeah that was a long time ago and you've been ignoring me while all the other books came out <laughs> You well the, the fun seeing other people. I've been seeing other well, not seeing but talking, listening. Uh, it, ha have you been listening to my conversations? Well, no, I, I'm not some kind of pervert. <laughs> well, that's mildly. Well, I am, but not in that fashion. I don't like to peek. Okay. Yeah. Um. Well, it. One of the things I was thinking about because it's been was that two and a half years ago. At uh, the very least, uh, I would say maybe even three years, yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm 14. Yeah. yeah, so broaching on three. And mm -hmm. I was thinking a lot about 
uh, and especially lately, I've been noticing such a a seismic shift artistically since then. Where, and I also know that your Nobrow book was done quite some time before it came out as well. I think it was like a yeah, couple uh, of years. and uh, Jacob Letters as well. Both had a insane delay. Um, <laughs> make me particularly happy. Um, and the I mean, I, I guess it's kind of interesting with with Jacob's bladders being um, kind it's of. Not, it's not Jacob's bladders. Can you at least learn the name of the book you're talking about? I don't do that on purpose. Oh, I'm fine. Go on. It's a slip of the tongue as you purposefully title your books uh, to play that role. Well, I, well, right. I I titled them expressly to make people like you uncomfortable when they try to pronounce them. I don't know if I'm the one uncomfortable right now. Well, I'm very comfortable. Uh, It's a very uncomfortable title. You know, it has the B at the end of the word and at the beginning of the word and then another B following it, which, well, hang on. Um, I think I overdid it on the B. Too many Bs. Well, right. There's siblings. There's just all the rules of proper writing are completely broken. And of course, I did on purpose. So when you when you are writing, do you think your work like sometimes it's personally meant to be said aloud? But this, you're 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 playing with us, trying to put a barrier towards saying the book aloud, or um, just well, you're you're right in saying that pretty much all of my work should ideally be read aloud. Of course, I don't expect people to do that in an ideal world, perhaps. But, um, well, it, it really does depend on who is reading. Uh, I, remember, I remember talking to Ryan Sands, actually, long ago, and saying something to him, the name of one of my books, and he said, oh, I didn't realize it's a pun. And I thought, well, hang on, how is that even possible? And uh, I talked to him further, and he said that he, when he reads a book, he doesn't necessarily hear a voice, which happens to me all the time. Any book I read, it's always in a voice. So... For me, the sound always comes before the meaning, and for him, the meaning comes probably before the sound. I imagine the ratio is different for all people, but yeah, I, I start with the sound, then I find the meaning, and then I kind of jump between the two. I, I get the feeling from your work, and what I was trying to get to earlier is um, is about the shift in your work, is mm-hmm. where with, in a sense... Um, was very tight, very controlled. Where when I'm looking at the stuff like uh, Maurice, son of Noah, uh, it's like you're getting to a point where you're really allowing your work to be expressive, and it's still controlled in a way, but it's um, it's not focused on just a utilitarian image. Like there's so much happening within that image. Uh, yeah, that that's very true. I guess uh, in a sense it was kind of my apprenticeship and. Um... I did it in this old-timey way, old Dan Club style, had a big board and just did everything on one page. And uh, I, I don't really like that book. Uh, I don't really like any of my books, to be entirely honest with you. Uh, I like some of my shorter works. Oh, God, there's a mosquito here. <sighs> this country. Anyway, and, uh, I, yeah, I think some of my shorter works are pretty excellent. And when I reread them, I think, how could I possibly write this? This is much better than 
what I usually write. And when I reread my books, I just can't wait for them to disappear from my consciousness. Uh, so in a sense, yeah, it's it's too controlled. I think the writing is really contrived, and uh, it shows a lot of my insecurities. That you know, I wrote it as a immigrant in process. I wasn't even an immigrant at that point, so my control of English was still kind of barely trying to show itself. And it, it's a bit showy. It's trying to kind of demonstrate how many references I can plug into one panel. Mm-hmm. Whereas in, in Morris, or as you pronounce it, Maurice, which is curious, um, uh, actually, I don't really know how to pronounce it. I, I kind of based it on Morris, as in Ian e. Foster's Morris, but there's a few other references there. Uh, it's probably three or four times more dense and complex than Innocence, but mm-hmm. every sentence is very sharp, straight, and written in a fashion that anyone can understand and doesn't need deciphering in this kind of Finnegan Wakes-ish manner. So the, the references are there and the connections between the different things, but they're buried much deeper and you don't need to go through dictionaries in order to understand what the hell's going on. It, it's like you're, you're getting tighter with, with the writing, but the art you're allowing to be a lot more expressive and kind of, I don't want to say abstract, but definitely like having uh, more elements to it that kind of allow the work to play around more. Yeah, that's that's very perceptive of you to say that. Uh, that was very much the intention. Well, I remember rereading something I did, probably in a sense, and just being incredibly irritated by myself uh, as Everyone should be, frankly, by their younger self. And um, I was thinking, all right, well, I kind of know how to do that. Very poetic, bouncy, attractive play on words. I wonder if I can do that with a clarity that mm-hmm. has so far been entirely absent from my work. Uh, because I don't have patience for some of that stuff that I write. You know, If I read my older stuff, I sometimes don't understand what the hell I'm going on about. And uh, I kind of felt a lot of sympathy for my poor readers, and I wanted to give them something that they can actually enjoy. Uh, but at the same time, to have a level of complexity that gives a different reading experience depending on what you have read and experienced in your own life. Uh, so uh, when it came to the images, I start with pretty straightforward sketches, and then uh, I allow the treatment to go completely nuts. So what happens in Morris, or Maurice, or whatever you call it, is that I go straight with ink, uh, do a sketch that's usually quite attractive. And then any bit that I don't like, which is not necessarily badly drawn, it may be just boring, I paint over it. And um, here's the thing. I, I was talking to my friend Sophia uh, Foster Demina, who you should all probably know. And um, she's also a great cartoonist. And um, we were talking about painted comics, and she said something like, well, they never work, and, uh, you know, in comics you need clarity and whatnot, and they always end up looking like they're McKean or something. And I agreed with her, but then I went to the studio, and I thought, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do a painted comic now, because I'm incorrigibly contrarian. So my first impulse in anything is to do the opposite of what makes sense. Yeah. So I thought, okay, well, can I do a comic that is 
not realistic and not abstract and not a midpoint between realism and abstraction, but something that constantly fluctuates. And the story is about, um, well, about many things, but the main theme is probably uh, the inconceivable fluctuation of truth and the blurry borders between reality and fiction and the the many accounts of history and how all of them are true and false at the same time. Mm -hmm. So for a narrative that is so entirely ungrounded in any fact, it made sense to have artwork that is also constantly flying off your face and uh, you have to kind of go with your instincts and decide what it is that you're looking at. With the, with, with Maurice, uh, son of Noah, um, did you have... Um... That, by the way, is a working title. Okay. Yes. Um... I, I'm thinking of... Um, well, let me know what you're saying. I'm thinking Bible 2, uh, the newest testament, and uh, maybe Floods, or um, the best Armenian comics, which I think is quite good, because people might mistake it for best American comics. I think best Armenian comics, 2016. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Especially if it comes out four years later. Or so, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Or best Armenian comics, 1847. There we go. That might be too obvious. Anyway, uh, <laughs> you probably forgot what you were saying, but. No, no. I wanted to talk about um, just the the starting this work because I mean it is uh, it is really to me a lot different than looking at your longer. Uh, works um and i'm just kind of wondering what the how much is improvisation with with the work and kind of um letting the work the artwork mm -hmm. follow the words um do you have a long game with this book in mind yeah the thing is uh, it's already 60 pages which is longer than anything i've ever done and at this point the main character has just left on the quest. <laughs> I, I think there's about 15 pages that in any fashion pertain to the actual story. The rest is all digression. So it's made up very much in the fashion of Tristram Shandy and George Perak and all those writers that I admire. I think particularly I was rereading Dead Souls by Gogol and um, has a bit just bang in the middle of the entire book. I mean, he starts going on about a completely unrelated character that never recurs, and then it cycles back. And I thought, that's really bold. Uh, so a lot of writers, uh, like Cervantes, and uh, I mean, all the novels that came before the birth of the novel, starting with Genji Monotari and uh, Don Quixote and whatnot, they were all incredibly postmodern and experimental. Mm -hmm. But as for... Uh, improvisation, I think that is again very perceptive of you to say so because it is hugely improvised and I allow myself much more freedom than before uh, to the extent that I never sit down to write it. So what happens is I walk around with a notebook and I don't write ever. And then occasionally uh, I hear a voice in my head and then if I have a notebook with me I just write down what the voice says so sometimes it's something quite stupid. So today I wrote something like, uh, uh, I don't remember, something like glass pumpkins taste not unsurprisingly of glass. It, it's highly unlikely that this will end up in any of my great American Armenian graphic novels. But, you know, you have to write it down anyway. Mm 
So sometimes you get a kind of frisson and you know that you can't trust that voice. And uh, at that point, it really feels like writing under di dictation. So with Morris, the process is allowing this stuff to happen, which definitely ties in with the theme of the impending flood and kind of opening the floodgates and the... Um, this affluence of words coming in and then being edited out. So my writing process is very straightforward, almost mindless, but then it goes through a huge amount of editing and editing and editing. I'm kind of an obsessive rewriter. And uh, the reason why it's so crappily lettered, by the way, uh, was one, so that no one can read it except me, and two, so that I can rewrite it later on, because there's, there's no way that this text will stay and not be rewritten hundred times. Well, the you sent me a copy of the the next chapter where um, yeah, I just didn't bother lettering at all. <laughs> <laughs> so is that one going to be posted just with the with the font? Uh, no, no, no. My Hazlitt uh, agreement was for four parts. Um, no, I well the whole Hazlitt thing was quite funny because I pitched it as a story about uh, a gay man, but you know it has fuck all to do with that. So uh, I think they. They're probably really disappointed, and <laughs> I mean, it, it is. Uh, there's a lot about that, but it's in a very sort of artsy, fartsy, postmodernist fashion. It has uh, nothing remotely feel goody about it. It has. Uh, it has obviously a lot to do with sexuality and identity and whatnot, but in an incredibly roundabout way. But to finally end up your sentence, your question about uh, improvisation and whatnot, yeah. So everything that I read and everything that happens to me in my real life goes straight into this one piece of work. So I, I can find a lot of examples, but well, the, over the top of my head, uh, there's a book on, that I would see on a bookshelf all the time by uh, Lorca called In Search of Duende. And I, until maybe a few months ago, I misread it as In Search of Dundee, which is a town in Scotland. Mm -hmm. And then I finally picked it, and I thought, hang on, it's not Dundee. And now it's, it's not really funny. Uh, so I read that bit, and it's about this idea of Dandy and the guitars and Spanish things and whatnot, and it's great in its own way. But then I wrote a, a little kind of prose poem about that, and that ended in the book. Uh, so the nameless woman who is um, one, the only female protagonist for a reason in that book, she reads that um, Lorca book, and uh, the narrator who, spoiler alert, is God, obviously, uh, misreads the title. And so everyone in the book goes on a pilgrimage to Dundee, uh, which to me is quite funny um, uh, to, you know, pick this completely incidental misreading and base an entire story on it. Mm -hmm. So then a lot of accidental things like that happen, and now I have a set of constraints, and it becomes a puzzle. So I have to justify why they're going to Dundee, and uh, I go, all right, well, one of them is going to call God. So, of course, he goes to Dundee, because that's where the inventor of the telephone, Alexander Graham Bell, was born. So suddenly, um, there emerges a network of fictions and uh, jokes and accidents. And uh, my job is not really that much of a writer as of an editor of weaving together all these patterns into some semblance of a meaning.
Um, Are you stunned by the cleverness of my reply? No, it just went completely silent for a second. So was... Yeah, you can edit in some applause or whatever. <laughs> or maybe uh... sigh. <laughs> oh, brother. God, that was satisfying. <sighs> oh, the uh... breadth of his rhetoric. Plug it in. <laughs> anyway. Maybe I'll put echo on the end, so it's just like your, your the last word you say kind of goes on for like a minute. Mm. Um, I'm interested. Um, Sonanoa and Jacob Bladders, uh, mm -hmm. both biblical references. Uh, at least I'm presuming Jacob Bladders is a biblical reference. Um, it, it is, but it's. Um... Well, yes, but it's much closer to a particular work by William Blake called Jacob's Letter. But yes, you're right. Uh, and Blake being someone who... Well, he was obsessed with religion. Yeah. So. Uh, but for you, you're not, I, you don't strike me as particularly religious, I'm going to say. I'm violently agnostic. Yeah. Well, what um, I mean by that is not that I'm undecided, that the question of faith is uh, not part of my conscience at all. And, and, and I'm going to say I'm probably in the same boat. Um, but one thing I think we may have in common is an interest in kind of um, the stories that kind of follow through. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's definitely the strand that I follow. And and that's kind of with Noah, especially. I mean, that is like you know, the first you know one of the first stories. And you you kind of talk about this in the mm -hmm. book in the in the in the strip where. Well, the, the idea for Noah was incredibly simple. I was walking down the street as usual. Uh, that's where all my ideas come from. <laughs> by the way. Just like see you up and down the hills of San Francisco. Yes, yes, that's that's what I do. And I, I don't have any life. I don't know why would you why do you need that when you have such. Uh, wonderful company inside you have. Uh, so I thought, uh, all right, so he built that ship, and he has all the animals inside, so they have nothing to do but just fuck all the time. Can you imagine the smell there? <laughs> just every flavor of semen dripping from every orifice. Um, so I sort of chuckled to myself. I was watching... Yeah, I have a little, a little, little side to that. I was just uh, watching one of those like Mother Nature, Blue Planet things with my dad mm -hmm. a while ago because he can't really watch straight narratives very easily, or at that time he couldn't. Uh, mm. So we just watched about nature things. We watched this one about the ocean, and they showed us that this one thing where um, these fish would, you know, they'd have their sex in season, and then all this foam that would wash up on the beach was fish oh, or it was God. either fish or turtle it might have been turtles and it was just like foam of just semen just like washing ashore you know <laughs> with the the great british voice i forget the name of the 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 british guy uh who you, you'll you'll know who it is mm -hmm. who does all that stuff and uh was just... Brian blessed oh <laughs> 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 semen washing ashore yeah, no, that would be amazing. Anyway, um, I, 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 I would pay money for Brian Blessed narrated nature shows. Oh, yes. yes please, especially the salsa bit. Ho, ho, ho! Look at him go! It's <laughs> a randy fellow. Um, yeah, I don't know where I was going with that. I just like thought of that, that like foamy beach. It's a beach of foam, and it's all just skeet-skeet everywhere. Oh, I love the word foam. It's very funny. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
um, yeah, so the, after that, I thought, well, that's silly. And then I thought, well, how about I do a story about the Ark, but without Noah or the Ark? So what is left? Just a bunch of animals. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I can fuck this up even further and make all the animals gay. So Noah just loses his shit and drinks himself to death. And that struck me as very funny. Yeah. So, uh, and then I thought, well, all right, how about he has a fourth son that is completely forgotten by history because he's gay, so he never had children, and there was no one to write his history. So here I am, finally bringing him to light. I like it. Yes, me too. Um... I like the description so far better than the actual comic. <laughs> <laughs> But hopefully it will live up to my grand idea. Well, the whole the whole story, the narrative of Noah is just so just like saves all the animals, gets beached, gets drunk, gets mad yeah. at one of his sons for seeing him passed out in a cave, and oh. Oh. Uh, you know, Noah well, got drunk uh, naked. You know, masculinity is a big part of my work. Um, obviously not in a celebratory fashion. Yeah. Don't need to mention that. <laughs> Uh, so, but at the same time, I don't want to kind of be like, "Ooh, aren't we terrible?" I want to explore the the current that make us slightly idiotic creatures. By us, I mean man. So, that's part of it. it yeah. It's kind of it's a celebration of stupidity. In in an attempt to understand it better, you know, it, it's a. Uh, I'm I'm not at all cynical about all this stuff. So. I want to talk about how um, the end of offense um, mm -hmm. kind of fits into this this because I look at it and I see it's like a very specific work in your narrative where it stands out to me in a really unique way where you look at your books you know in a sense Jacob Bladders um, and then end of offense um, well they're all puns. They're all puns, yeah. But so, the, the, yeah. <laughs> the 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 work itself sits in a different way for me. Um, mm. And there was something just about like, especially when comparing it to 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 Morris, um, mm -hmm. how it plays such like a it it's such a shifting point for me looking at your work. Mm -hmm. um, because there's like a really beautiful minimalism to it. Uh, but not minimal in the same way of In a Sense was, but where you're kind of uh, letting the pages work by themselves and kind of working with the smaller format constraint because it's one of those Kuss books. Um, yeah, well, you know, the strange thing about it is that it wasn't supposed to be a book at all. And um, I wrote it at quite a difficult time in my life when I was incredibly depressed and I was in a very poor house. And I really did feel like I probably don't have more than a year to live or so. So uh, I thought this will be my fuck you to the world. And uh, it was supposed to be in the fashion issue of Kush. Uh, so they asked me to do a story and I made the story and it was four panels per page. And then they said, um, it's too pretty. Let's do it as a book with one panel per page. So that's what happened. And I kind of regret doing that. I think uh, I should have done a different story for that. But incidentally, uh, the, this whole charade, it left a hole in the fashion issue 
which I filled up with a story that I did in a matter of a week called Picnic Priest. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the best things I've ever done. Uh, and I think that is a, really is a shifting point in my work because it's very, it's very subtle. It's completely straightforward in narrative. There's no way you can misunderstand it. Uh, but it has a very subtle complexity to it that, um, to me, it's definitely informed by people like Lydia Davis and uh, Cesar Ira. And, you know, just yesterday I was rereading Lily Carre and I thought, oh, that's kind of like, like her, but I mean, she's one of the greatest cartoonists in my opinion, and one of the most underrated as well. Mm-hmm. And I really wish she would do another book instead of all the uh, admittedly beautiful animations. But I think her writing is just incredible. Anyway, uh, so I, d- I did this very short, simple, and sweet story that you know it, it's about so many things again from masculinity to just wordplay and language but it's much much more subtle and it's very much a response to end of offense which um i don't really like to be honest because of the dark time in my life that uh, it coincided with i think it definitely has value uh i think it is uh, far too difficult to be understood without some kind of guidance uh, because there's a rather monstrous level of omission. So the story itself uh, was very detailed. I came up with kind of an, an entire, uh, not language, but a way of speaking. Like it had its own pronouns and the way that language mutated because it says in the future. And I said, well, there's, it doesn't make any sense for people to talk the way we talk now. Mm-hmm. Uh, which one of the last favorable reviewers on Goodreads pointed out that it's in broken language, in broken English, and I think he wrote something like, probably it's badly translated, which I thought was really funny. The idea that all of this is accidental because the translator is not very good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You know, like, a translator is so bad that it came up with a new pronoun, which is quite a leap. Anyway, a new pronoun? Um, yeah. So it's like H-U as a short for human. So I thought uh, it would be a, a world where the kind of late capitalist humanist uh, delusions would prevail. And uh, the sort of distractions that uh, lead to the worst bouts of consumerism that we're facing now, especially in San Francisco, will be the default mode of communication. And then I framed it in a more simple narrative of people being grouped together by compatibility, which incidentally, like after the book came out, there were two or three stories in the news that were pretty much exactly like it, except they were written in normal language. <laughs> so, so I couldn't say, well, I said so. But, uh, you know, in a way, it's, it's um, like an episode, I guess, of Twilight Zone of Black Mirror that's not aimed at anyone at all. Um, <laughs> but you know the story is quite simple, really. Yeah. But um, the reason why I wrote it in such a bizarre way is because uh, it is a story about miscommunication and confusion. And I always think that the medium should uh, reflect what they're doing more than the actual story. So in a story about confusion, it would make no sense to have any clarity. 
And uh, I reflected that in the drawings themselves. So what I would do occasionally is I would close my eyes and I would select the rectangle tool in Photoshop, randomly select a bit and move it somewhere else, and then redraw it. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about San Francisco um, and just... Because yeah. you're not happy there. Well, I'm not happy anywhere, but uh, yes... Do you I'm see yourself happy. staying there through uh, this technological really utopia? I, I've been moaning for ages about how much I want to leave, but every time I do, I want to come back because I get incredibly spoiled by this weather. And uh, because of my rather fragile health, uh, I do rely on that quite a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, so last time I was in New York a couple of times, it was just unbearable. Um, and yeah, it is unfortunate that the city is almost entirely populated by dicks. Um, so, well, what can you do? Yeah. The very simple, I think we can say quite confidently, it's the fact that the human social progress does not at all follow the technological progress in a parallel line. No. And um, a lot of stuff that's happening now, we will catch up to it much, much later. I mean, me and Sophia and a few other friends were just doing stories for VR in the Oculus studio. Yeah. Uh, have you tried VR? No, I... It's I, really strange. So, and, and we were joking about how no one really knows what that actually does to you. Yeah. So I'm thinking some five years from now, we will be like the lab rats and they'll be thinking, oh, look at this funny cartoonist. He's completely fucked up now because he spent a month writing a story in that thing that was forever forgotten now. But Like comics made especially drawn while you're in VR. Yeah, that's the thing now. And uh, you'll see more of that later. Mark my words. <laughs> Warnings of the future. <laughs> yeah. Leave now, everyone. This sip it. <laughs> this sip is shinken. Anywho. Um, you want, do you want to say a few words about Jacob Letters? Because it's technically the last book that came out and we barely talked about it. Well, we're still talking. We're still chatting. Oh, all right. All right. Yeah, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not ending it. Don't oh, worry. Okay. Oh, yeah. Okay. No, no. I'm, I'm enjoying this. As much as you're, uh, you're sassing me. Um, it's a... Uh, sassy man. I, uh, well, it's, sassy you know, be, I like a good sassing and I don't get it enough from people. So I, 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 I'm enjoying it. Um, look, I was thinking about the, uh, the role that the, the priest, uh, to a picnic plays as far, cause you're talking about how, um, the end of offense was really made at quite a dark time in your life and it's a dark mm -hmm. work and the priest picnic is, is incredibly light yeah. Um, and even visually. Yeah. yeah, visually, it's beautiful. I mean, all your work is beautiful, but it it has like an effervescence to it, where it's like you just you want to go there and you can sit in the sun, and um, it reminds me of a lot like um, kind of nineteen sixties seventies British stuff. <laughs> like, really? That's funny. Yeah. Um, I think I was referencing early even, Warhol. Uh, who I don't really like at all, but particularly the vacuity and the shallowness of his work yeah. uh, through the prism of Ben Sean, who he was ripping off very blatantly. So it's kind of a backward archaeological process, which is what a lot of my work is, and it really 
pisses me off. Um, you know, I, I, I try to be lighthearted about the things that people say about me, but I really can't fucking stand when they bring up Picasso. That's the laziest art reference. And like, well, <laughs> you, you can't do any effort. You say, oh, it's, it's a bad cubist. But, you know, I can't stand cubism and Picasso uh, and mainly for all that macho bullshit, but he's just, he's not that great. You know? So the stuff I reference, uh, people like Wyndham Lewis and Selena, whatever, they're, they're a bit forgotten. But You mean Selena, the writer? Yeah. I don't really know why I brought him up, but... I was uh, going to say, that's a, little, that's, that's a <laughs> real dark reference there, buddy. Um, <laughs> where is he? Oh, he is in the Maurice, yeah. Well, he is very subtly in Maurice. Yeah. Um, but, well, I, I like the exclamation marks. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of ellipses and a lot of exclamations. Oh, right, right. Well, for... Um, yeah, you were saying about the lightness in the... Well, you know, that's right. Um, I was in a dark place, then I uh, came out of it... Um, you know, uh, I met a woman, the rest is left to imagination, and I felt better for a bit. And I wrote that story, which is uh, seemingly nonsensical. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's just, I'm just thinking the connection it plays with uh, with the Maurice, the son of Noah. Mm-hmm. Um, and just kind of how um, having that as like a palate cleanser, in a way. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, mean, I am glad that the fans book is is published by Kush, which is kind of low pressure. Uh, so, you know, I can't wait for Innocence to get out of print, but probably going to take a while. Uh, so <laughs> it's on, this, you know, on the lower scale, which is, uh, which is all right. And, uh, yeah, I definitely felt like a liberation. I, I think uh, I was reading a lot of Lydia Davis at the time, whom I love a lot. And she, a lot of her stuff is very influenced by Beckett. And uh, it is kind of a, like a lighter Beckett with an American band to it, which normally I don't appreciate. <laughs> but in her case, it's quite delightful. And um, probably it has bits of Ira and Donald Bartholomew, and maybe some shorter bits of Gogol and whatnot. And, and same with Maurice, it's... Um, I think the big difference between Maurice and my earlier stuff is that the references are entirely explicit. Mm-hmm. So if I'm referencing Gogol, I will actually name drop him. You know, so people know exactly what I'm talking about. And it's, it's not trying to be obscure. It's not trying to kind of hide behind my erudition, uh, which admittedly is massive. Now, um, you were sassing me earlier for not bringing up Jacob. Um... <laughs> And in the way that I feel the the story in the fashion books kind of palate cleanser, I feel like Jacob in a way is a palate cleanser for you as well in that kind of um, moving out of um, being so rooted in that illustration style mm-hmm. and having that be like a big part of your, your work or the way people look at your work. Uh, in that same way that Seth kind of gets cut up where we were like, oh, it's the New York Times drawing guy. Uh, or the New Yorker drawing guy. Yeah, well, that's yeah, that, that's relevant in a number of ways. So to put it in the timeline, I would say that, yes, so these three books that have puns in the title, they're all very dark in their own ways, and I don't particularly like them for that reason. They're, they're quite demanding in a way that I find irritating nowadays. Uh, and they don't show much of my 
warmer, more lighthearted personality, which does exist, believe me. I have given him a hug, <laughs> listeners. I gave him a very reluctant hug once. That was disgusting. <laughs> uh, You're humor. welcome. And um, so in their own ways, they're all, yeah, kind of transitional. So End of Hands, I think, conceptually is the darkest and most depressing book, if you actually understand what's going on there. <laughs> Uh, Bladders, uh, you know, when it came out, uh, I must say I didn't want to publish it at all. So here's the timeline. I wrote it while I was working on Innocence, so it's really, really old. I wrote it for a French anthology that Trondheim was editing. And then he wrote me, uh, I have no idea what's going on in this. Can you write a 10-page story, uh, story that's more simple? And also I think they realized that no one can possibly translate that. Although someone did eventually, so, you know. Fuck off. Is that in the um, book from Dargode? That's right. And uh, we can talk about it in a bit. And then um, uh, I sort of decided to draw it anyway. And I would only draw it when I felt like it, which was a big difference from Innocence, which was kind of a, you know, this torturous experience of proving to everyone how good I am at drawing with a brush. Because for some reason I saw that that's something you have to prove to be accepted into the club or something. Anywho. So it started in quite a simple way. I had an agent back in the day when I started working as an illustrator and was miserable. And she called me and said something like, so, uh, you know, the job that you get for, from New Yorker, they pay you 200? I said, yes. Don't you think that's a little low? I said, well, yes, quite. Uh, especially when you take the percentage, I thought to myself, but didn't say. And she said, well, would you like me to give them a call and have a bit of a chat? I said, no, that's entirely inappropriate because they have a flat rate for every artist and hung up. And then I thought, well, what if she, what if this happened in the 1940s and to have a chat meant to send some people to beat them up? And then the whole kind of universe of bladders coalesced together, which is basically the modern illustration industry set in the 40s. So to give uh, people who are not familiar, it, it, a lot of it is an inside joke that is entirely inaccessible to normal people. But to give a bit of context, in the 40s and whatnot, uh, or even a few decades ago, you could comfortably make a living as an illustrator uh, just doing one or two jobs a month. Yeah. Like Sol Standberg could support his family and two lovers, as far as I know. I don't remember. I read his massively bloated biography long ago. And... Um, uh, you know, what's his name? Uh, Arno was a celebrity. Yep. He, had a, he had a fucking gun that he borrowed from the New Yorker, which is also in the book, by the way. So I, I was really fascinated by this world, and I thought, well, what if this, uh, this society functioned by today's standards, where illustrators are just human garbage, and uh, the, low, the, the worst visual profession you can have, you know, while uh, the designers are just wallowing in ground-up prostitutes. And what if they also had Twitter, but the Twitter was a set of pneumatic tubes, obviously. But this is not a ha-ha, imagine, it's not like a Flintstones bullshit. Uh, what I'm saying is, of course there was Twitter, it was just something else that didn't survive. What I'm saying is, all these channels of communications are permanent. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it does foreshadow Morris in its vision of a kind of non-linear history that has a permanent. And the event that happened um, a century ago not only happened then, but they continue to happen for the rest of eternity, and they happened before and after something else happened. 
So it's a very elastic vision of time. End of sentence. <laughs> I like I liked how the, the honk played in for that. <laughs> yeah, people are fascinated outside. There's a, there's a crowd uh, listening, as they always do when I preach. <laughs> Hello, San Francisco. Indeed. Um, um, yeah, and the, for the style of the book, um, I was very much inspired by the illustration that Chagall made for Dead Souls. Uh, really inventive, uh, much, much darker and stranger than his paintings uh, that usually tend to feature his wife in one pose or another and some goats. Uh, the illustrations were really weird. Uh, so I thought I would kind of try to evoke that feeling. And uh, I also thought of doing the book kind of by hand, literally. So, you know, for each one, I just kind of... I started drawing it in the way of Glias Williams, and maybe a bit of like, Sammy Harkham and Seth. And I just immediately found it a little too... I wouldn't say too easy, but too familiar. Mm-hmm. So I just started smudging these lines as badly as I can. And it, it's a way of making things really... Un- difficult for myself and then finding oh is there any way to extricate myself out of this mess and of course then it tied with the whole story because in a nutshell i'm not going to spoil anything the story is that a drawing falls in the river gets smudged so hard that it becomes a william blake drawing from centuries ago so of course in that story it made sense to make literal smudges in the medium itself It works out beautifully within the book, um, and there's something interesting how you because most of your work has some kind of color play, and this has no color, except yeah, that, that was also a challenge, for sure. Uh, and I'm I'm not very good at black and white, uh, and I think this was, I mean, for, for all of my books, every medium I pick is a way of learning it. So yeah. I never pick a medium that I actually know how to use. <laughs> And uh, in every one of my books, there's uh, an obvious learning curve from beginning to the end. So if you look at Innocence, like the first pages are quite all, all right, because I redid them a hundred fucking times. And then they get more and more confident. And with Bladders, uh, you know, the first pages are so-so. But I, I recently reread and I thought, oh, that's kind of all right. There were certain panels that I looked at, and I have no idea how I made them. And that's kind of a good feeling when you look at yourself and think, this is totally beyond me. I can't do it. <laughs> I want to talk about your relationship with comics. Because um, I feel like... Abusive. Abusive. To whom? Mutually. <laughs> they hate me. I hate them. Well, I feel like, in that's a way, yeah. you're pulling away from comics and i don't know how i can properly uh elocute what i'm trying to say um i think i know what you're hinting at in general in the idea of form rather than the community um you know i didn't grow up with comics so i don't have any of that residual fondness that uh, all the damn clauses have mm-hmm. and neither do i have um the kind of growing up experience on Ghost World or whatnot, because um, I, I just didn't have that as a young person. And uh, I came to comics pretty late. So 
the the reason why I do comics is maybe because I don't really have a lot of comics that I consider perfect. Perhaps uh, I would say Jason is the only person that I can never grow out of, which is uh, lately kind of getting a little irritated. The thing is, I don't want to write a novel because um, I have George Perec, who you know, and a, a list of authors that can go on for another hour who are brilliant at that. Uh, I don't really want to write poetry uh, for the same reason. I don't want to write music because there's the fall and who needs the rest. But with comics, uh, I really am doing um, what everyone says. Oh, write the book you want to read. And then no one actually does that. But um, I try to do that. And so far I haven't written that book. And I hope I never will for obvious reasons. But I have written a few short pieces that I would consider to be uh, kind of shockingly good to the extent that I have no idea how I made them and I can't replicate them, which drives me slightly insane. So like the Priest Picnic, I think, is one of these very uh, perfect little pieces that really does feel like someone else did it. And uh, another one I'm quite fond of is uh, the one I had in Smoke Signal called uh, Extended Family Abridged. Have you seen that one? I can't remember. It's been a while since I've read so, the Smoke uh, Signal. Just to give you a general idea, it's a constrained comic and written in a kind of prose poem. And um, each panel is one chapter, and each subsequent panel, the chapter, the chapter number increases in geometric progression along with the number of characters uh, who are all members of the family. So it goes from one to two to four to 200, something like that. So uh, I think that, you know, that's obviously hugely inspired by Ulipo and Perak and whatnot, but uh, it also is um, very warm and dear to me because through that uh, cold mathematical constraints emerge the scenes of loneliness and uh, being brought up in the in this very um, how do I put it kind of, um, well I, I'm from Caucasus the mountain so uh, I don't really know what the word is to describe it in English because there, there's a word in Russian but if you say Caucasian that basically means white so you know kind of very tightly knit warm community mm-hmm. that's been displaced into Moscow which is the unfriendliest fucking place imaginable. And uh, I have kind of several layers of displacement. So one with my family and two with my environment. And then on top of that, I also fled because that's what every fucking artist have to do. You have to have a self-imposed exile. So that, to me, that really comes across. And perhaps that's why I'm so fond of this comic and to other people it's just a needlessly clever constraint. But... uh, Still, I should finish this sentence. Uh, something here. Period. <laughs> um, I want to talk about the fall a little bit because I know they're your favorite band, or yeah, as I, you said, the, the, the only me. band. <laughs> Everyone knows me, and I roll in their eyes in unison. And go, oh, there we go. <laughs> you know, if I do an interview, I am going to mention the fall at some point. But does anyone that. take the take the bait? Um, well, they they usually go, "Oh, is that the grumpy man?" Yes. 
Um, we can say he's the grumpy man, but also um, it's the idea of having a singular vision um, mm-hmm. for a sustained amount of, of time. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's so strange what he does, if you think about it. Yeah. He started doing it when he was 16, and now he's 60-something. <laughs> he's still doing the same thing. Uh, but like Jason, everything he does is always different, been always the same, like John Peel said. Uh, but to me, well, there are several layers in which the fall influenced me. Of course, it's a burst of language, so I started listening to it before I actually could speak English. And uh, as you can imagine, it's probably not the most straightforward introduction to the English language. <laughs> And I started listening to the album Grotesque, which um, I think was inspired by a lot of uh, 80s, well, not 80s, like early rap. Uh, and a lot of early rap, which I also love, has an uh, incredible amount of localism. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, I li- recently re-listened to 36 Chambers, and I thought, well, that holds on pretty well. Uh, but I was particularly listening to the... Uh, the Mystery of Chess Boxing, which is you know, one of the greatest songs ever written. And I, I realized that that bit when Aldo the Bastard sort of goes r- rapping and then kind of merges into a sing-song fashion and goes, and gotta get up and be somebody, uh, that had a massive influence on me because it's uh, a kind of fluctuation style of language which is um, it doesn't really fall into any form of um, either it's rap or singing or what is it. Uh, and of course, the insults are just fantastic. And The Fall takes all that and takes it into this um, very arty-farty, repetitive structure. Mm-hmm. It's very literally. It's influenced by people like uh, Wyndham Lewis and Celine and whatnot. Uh, but and Gossip same- Girl. I mean, Gossip Girl, bizarrely. Yeah, so, I mean, there's so many things I learned from him, but um, one of it is, like, I couldn't understand um, almost anything he was singing about. Well, singing is a generous term to describe what he does, uh, shouting about. But I kind of had a presence, a feeling of language before I could discern its meaning. And I think that's pretty much how my work functions nowadays. So then, for me, the fall is kind of a long relationship, and I slowly uncover it as I learn English and as I understand what's going on. And um, as for his method of work, uh, so the way he treats other people is the way I treat myself. So, you know, a lot of times, uh, I know he would set people against each other, he would kind of encourage a lot of conflict, which I do with myself, and like I said, you know, I would pick a medium that I'm not familiar with and just do it, so that's, that's kind of how he hires people to do. Like, he hired a drummer who's never heard the fall to go and just play next day, like, who's never heard a single song. Yeah. You know, and, or he would tell on one of the albums, okay, you do a cover of Iggy Pop song, and they go, all right, well, let's listen to it. And go, no, you have to do it from memory. And that's kind of genius, you know. So he doesn't approach it with this artsy-fartsy attitude that I have. Um, and I think many people are confused by his... Um, well, he, he's probably not the most pleasant person in the world, let's say that. Uh, but it's very much a facade, because everything he does is very considered and really smart. And I think... Uh, Probably the biggest influence I had was 
a song called Paintwork, in which um, you know he's he accidentally presses record in a hotel room while listening to a tape of a song, and uh, a bit of TV news leaks on that tape, and that's in the song. So that's a beautiful example of taking the accident and just rolling with it. You know, a, a proper musician would just re-record that song, and it would be in an, another normal song, but who needs that? Uh, and of course, just the idea that language is not used for communication. Like, if you ask uh, what fall songs are about, no one can answer that, uh, because he constantly contradicts himself, uh, politically and uh, lyrically. And the reason why he does it is because he's not singing from himself. Every song is a different voice, and sometimes there are several voices in a song, kind of like a broken radio, especially early on. So if you listen to a song like Who Makes the Nazis, you know, it's a very kind of alluring title for a punk song, but it's not at all like The Clash or something. So he doesn't go and say who makes the Nazis. He just endlessly repeats the question until the strangeness of the word escalates into uh, a kind of abstract poetry. Mm-hmm. And it becomes uh, more a question of the rhetoric itself rather than the possible answer. Have you seen them play live? Or do you think it's something Yeah, I you'd... saw him at the kind of not the best <laughs> state. Uh, he came out, sort of mumbled three songs, and left. And I thought, that was the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> <laughs> I just love how he doesn't give any shit about what anyone thinks. And he constantly uh, sabotages himself. Yeah. Which I think takes a lot of courage. Um, well, when you're over in, uh, France, which you're going to this summer, mm-hmm. I think there's, someone was telling me there's like a fall show in, is it Manchester he's from? Yeah, yeah, I think there's a big festival called Transformer, uh, there's, they, um, they, there's he, the, the, the surviving guys from This Heat, uh, reformed as This Is Not This Heat, which is a brilliant title. I've heard it's amazing. Yeah, do you like this hit? I never. That's the funny part is I only recently like I don't know why it just never. Well, they were they were hugely influential. Yeah. Yeah, it just never entered my. And the the what's a twenty four hour loop is uh, light years ahead of its time. Yeah. And they're also like the fall. They never really got the credit for the influence they had. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I say the fall is the only thing, but that's obviously not true. At least I have a very eclectic taste in music, and uh, there's lots of stuff, and we can talk about that for hours, I'm sure. Yeah. But the fall is a kind of a, a towering presence in a way that nothing else in my life has. Yeah, that's that's what I was yeah alluding to, and mm-hmm. we got into. Um, well, I sort of, I talk about it so much that. People kind of feel that I'm uh, a little demented, but you know, people do develop the, the relationship with the fall particularly, and you have a lot of uh, quite well-known people like Stuart Lee and the guy who wrote Sands of the Land who are absolutely obsessed with it and who constantly drop their references and whatever. Uh, so it almost becomes like a cult. I think it's really strange to call it a band because it's not that at all. Apparently, um, David Letterman's a huge fall fan. Yeah, and so every time Sonic Youth would play, they would do nothing but fall covers. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, Sonic Youth has actually a pretty good EP of covers of fall, um, to which Marcus Smith replied that uh, Thurston Moore's rock license has to be revoked 
<laughs> I just like how how you you know. I think this is kind of a strange um, defense mechanism for him, and um, in a Lovecraftian fashion, it's almost like the fall is this entity, and he is a slave to it. He can't yeah. really do anything about it. So he just he says this shit to sabotage his own career and his own life because the fall has to stay on the ground. Yeah, like it can't become like the Decemberists or something like that. You know, I don't well, think that's gonna happen. Fall <laughs> <laughs> starts doing sea definitely. chanties. Um... Roman, I think we, we've got a fair amount of good conversation here. Okay, uh, let's plug some things. Would you like to start? You want uh, me to do it? No, I think, well, since you pretty much get half of the names wrong, maybe I should do it. <laughs> so, uh, hello, listener. Uh, so I have uh, Innocence Lost and Found from Nobrow from the Sound 14. I have... Uh, and there were fans published by Kush, who are a wonderful little um, Latvian small press company that should be supported. I'm also in many of their anthologies. Uh, like the the priest story was in the fashion one, if you're interested. Uh, I am also... Uh, so I also have a book published by the lovely folks at Uncivilized Books called Jacob Bladders, which we talked about just earlier. Um, that I think is a particularly beautiful piece of production and we worked incredibly hard on it, both me and Tom K. There were hundreds of versions and uh, we just terrorized the printer. Uh, you know, there's a very special kind of coating to it that is absent, uh, which makes the, each copy of the book a little different because mm -hmm. you know, it also adds to the deterioration. So um, I'm, I'm really happy with this result. I think there's also a biography to it. It's just a very unique artifact. Um, then if you speak French, then you can get my collection from Dergaux called uh, I can't speak French. And this is the only three words that I know in French called uh, Today, Tomorrow, Yesterday, which are incidentally quite poetic. This is a collection of all these three books, plus several strips, and plus a story called Vanishing Act, uh, which we haven't talked about at all because it's not published in English. And I really hope that someone will have the decency to publish it soon because it's quite all right. Uh, it's definitely the most convoluted and constrained story I have, but um, I think it's quite funny. And basically every four pages are drawn in a different style. So at the very least, it's very pretty to look at. And then... Uh, as Robin said, I'm, I have a short story coming up in an anthology from a publisher that you all know who that is. And then, uh, do you like that story? Yeah, I did actually. It was really, really fun. Good. I like yeah. it too. Uh, I rewrote it a hundred times, uh, again, to make it clear. I uh, terrorized Sophia to, like, is it clear now? Do you understand? And she goes, yes. Can you go away now? <laughs> Um, we teach together, so you know this is uh, the kind of friendship that has developed. Uh, anyway, and then um, I'm going to Angoulême, where I'll be hopefully working on something new, and also continuing my work on Morris. Morris uh, 
it's going to take another century probably, but meanwhile you can read the first 50 pages for free on Hazlet. And you can also follow me on Patreon. Uh, on So my website is bluebad.net and my Patreon is patreon.com slash bluebad. Blue as in I'm blue and I don't know why I exist and bad as in it's time to go to bed and never wake up again. And on Patreon, I'm... So there's a, I have a like, process pass where I try to write very clearly and informatively about uh, my work, mainly illustration, because that's what people know me for. So I kind of wrote, I post my sketches, my communications with art directors, and also some tips and tricks on how I make my stuff. You know, I'm generally, I'm very open about my process. Um, so it might be helpful if you're an aspiring illustrator or something. And then I also post uh, short comics there as well, if you pay $2 a month. So this is something I'm still trying out and hoping that people will catch on to that. Do you um, have... That's probably it, yeah. Do you ever have a plan to release any of your old uh, short comics, like the Yellow Zine work and stuff? Or you just want to have that lost to time? Uh, partially, yeah. Yellow Zine, so Yellow Zines is a series that I was doing for a while now. And... Um, with rapidly diminishing enthusiasm. Uh, and I think within... The first three issues are complete garbage. And I think starting with four, maybe there's one or two pages that are okay. So in the French book, there's a few of those. Mm -hmm. I think uh, right now there's seven issues, and I can probably find ten pages in it that I'm not ashamed of. So I'm, I'm sure that someday I will put out a book collection of that of those 10 that, pages uh, yeah i mean i'm definitely i don't want to put out things that are just failed experiments um i only printed out 100 copies of this zine and i really do want it to be an ephemeral object uh, you know i in the design you can see that becoming less and less commercial <laughs> like the last one i don't even know what the hell got on that cover uh, oh it's a story about my first SDG. um my first and only SDV, I should say. Um, and, uh, yeah, there, there are a few things in it that I think are quite good, like the story about the tree and the two readers. I think those are quite good. And the one about the potential zoo, which is a zoo with empty cages, so you go and imagine all the animals that could be there. I think that's funny. Uh, well, folks, if you can find them, read them. If not... You probably can't. There we go. You can you can you can imagine the potential comic about the potential zoo. <laughs> a sad zoo. Is it yeah. a sad zoo? Yeah. Meanwhile, buy my other books and just you know throw them away. It doesn't matter. <laughs> well, thank Give you. Give me all your money. <laughs> this is basically like a audio mugging. This is what this show is now. We are currently siphoning from your PayPal account. I hope you don't have Bitcoin. Um, thank you again, Roman. And no, thank uh, you. Sorry, I kind of uh, talk too much. It's an interview. Uh, You're supposed to. Oh, uh, you know, I, I'm also That's a teacher, so my my default mode of talking to people is lecturing. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did do a bit of that with me today. I, I, I oh, won't know, lie. It's not uncommon to you. you if if speeches. if we we were in school, I would I would feel bad and not raise my hand again um but no thank you yeah. so much i really appreciate hey, it grab my ruler and smack your bare bottom all right <laughs> good night